This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Telephony, uh, radio and TV broadcasting, uh, satellite communications, the internet, uh, they wouldn't have developed. If you're a beneficiary of any modern-day communications network, you have uh, benefited from something that the ITU has done. We want to see an internet that is open, that is peaceful, that is secure, that enables the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of ideas. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and today we're going to take an in-depth look at what some people call the most important United Nations agency you've never heard of. So what is it? Well, it's the International Telecommunications Union. Are you none the wiser? Here's the ITU's Deputy Secretary General, Malcolm Johnson, to tell us more. It was established in 1865 to overcome the challenges of cross-border operation of the telegraph service in Europe. In fact, operators had to ride out the, the telegram on one side of the border, walk across to the operator on the other side of the border, who would then start tapping down off the, the message for its onward uh, route. So it was quite a problem. And that was why IT was established to overcome that. So. Uh, so it is, in fact, uh, the oldest UN organization, probably the oldest in the world. But it's uh, it's always uh, remained in the, in the forefront of technology because it's always reformed itself over the years. So that's uh, ensured that we uh, remain in the forefront of technological developments. Even before the familiar telegraph key came this first Morse instrument whose spark set fire to the world of communication. Well, telegrams are not exactly 21st century technology. So what, I asked Malcolm, does the ITU do now? It's, uh, it's amazing, really, that uh, its main function basically remains the same as in 1865, and that is to provide for international communications and to connect people and businesses uh, throughout the world. Of course, this is a much more complex challenge than it was in 1865. And it's achieved by reaching worldwide agreement on the use of the radio frequencies and satellite orbits, the technical standards for the networks around the world that uh, carry all these communications, and also to ensure that um, equipment that's been produced by different manufacturers can interoperate and also that the the different services provided by all the different operators around the world can interoperate. So um, there are many uh, achievements over the years without which uh, telephony, radio and TV broadcasting, uh, satellite communications, the internet, uh, they wouldn't have uh, developed. So is the picture emerging from fuzzy to perfect clarity? Are we beginning to tune in to the ITU? One person who knows exactly why we shouldn't dismiss the ITU as irrelevant is the UK's ambassador to the UN here in Geneva, Simon Manley. Like so many Englishmen abroad, 
he needs his home comforts and the ITU provides. The rules that enable kind of spectrums, radio spectrum auctions to be held or satellite orbits to be determined that enable you know, me to sit in my living room here in Geneva and watch you know, the England football team or the England cricket team win, right? It's the, the satellite TV or online maps which ensure that I don't get lost when I go driving. It's those, those rules that underpin all of that. So many of them are developed in the ITU, some of those standards developed in the ITU. But the thing about the ITU, and it's kind of one of these organisations of which kind of few people have never heard, but it actually is really fundamental to kind of many of the key aspects of our lives today. We live in an ever more connected society, an ever more digitally connected society. England 2, Germany 1. But let's say you're not the biggest fan of English football. Fiona Alexander, an American telecoms expert with Scottish roots, points out that the ITU has been setting and developing standards for just about every means of communication any of us have ever used. If your wireless phone is working or um, any Wi-Fi device is working, you can thank the, the someone that worked at the ITU to help get those spectrum coordinations and allocations happen and then implemented in your home country. Uh, if you're a, a benefit of satellite radio or satellite TV or checking the weather with satellite services in any way, um, the ITU coordinates the orbital slots that are in, in, in the Earth's at, or around the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so that's so they don't collide. And the ITU also does things like or has done things like allocate country codes. So if you're making a phone call and you're in the UK and you dial 44, here in the US, if you're pressing one, the ITU is also the place that coordinated that in terms of making sure every country had a unique code so people could find each other. Um, it also now does some development work and capacity building in terms of connectivity. So, um, you know, if, if you're if you're a beneficiary of any modern day communications network, you have uh, benefited from something that the ITU has done in its um, 157 year history. Some of the things you've mentioned sound quite historic to to perhaps the younger generation: country codes or radio spectrum frequencies. You're convinced. We need the ITU in the 21st century as well for all the new information technology we have. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, a lot of today's new technologies rides on the old networks. Um, and so you can't have modern day wireless communications without coordinating spectrum. And there's always demands on spectrum. Um, but, you know, in today's world, um, the ITU mission has really focused on connectivity and connecting the world's unconnected. And the ITU provides great value and great work in trying to get everyone online so they can benefit from today's technology. Isn't it convenient? Wherever you are, wherever you go, whenever you want, you are connected to life, to friends. And despite all the advances of the last decades, a large number of us, 2.9 billion in fact, remain unconnected. As Ambassador Simon Manley points out, recent events have shown us how problematic that can be. The pandemic has showed us many things, uh, but... Yeah, what it revealed, of course, was the digital divide. Of course, in many ways, it also reinforced that divide. It showed the divide within our societies and between societies, between the developed world and the developing world. Uh, and, you know, you've got 60% uh, of the world's population that have access to the internet and 40% who basically don't. 96% of those, those 40%, live in developing countries. And while the pandemic showed that if you know, your company is able to digitalize, it can suddenly reduce the effective distance between it and the market. 
So a company in Kigali or in Lagos or, or in a Pacific can have that same access to the market as a company in Darlington or Dubai. It also showed that unless you have the digital tools to do that, that's not possible. So the ITU has a really important role in helping bridge that digital divide. ITU standardization is working to build a human-centric ICT environment. So now we've learned what the ITU does and why it's important to our lives. Here's the other reason Inside Geneva decided to do this program now. This month, the ITU will hold its once-every-four-years plenipotentiary conference. That's when ITU members, 193 UN member states, as well as almost 900 members from the IT business sector, the broadcasting industry and academia, get together to elect the new Secretary-General of the ITU and the new 48-member council. They'll determine ITU policy over the next four years. And here's the headline. The competition for Secretary-General is between an American... Doreen Bogdad-Martin and a Russian... Rashid Ismailov. Both have long experience in telecommunications, but some tech world watchers are predicting an ideological battle between supporters of a free and unfettered digital future and an authoritarian one in which every piece of information we get is vetted. Malcolm Johnson again. A lot of the decisions that are taken in ITU can have a multi-million pound or even multi-billion pound implications on the industry. Naturally, uh, there are disagreements. Uh, but in ITU, we, we have this tradition of resolving these differences by reaching consensus through negotiation and, uh, of course, through compromise. A lot of effort goes into that to maintain that tradition, to avoid uh, voting. and. Um, Eventually, in most cases, uh, we've reached successful consensus. You talked about multi-million dollar decisions and obviously satellites and radio spectrums. I can see that. But what about the one we all talk about nowadays? And that's the internet. There's a lot of stuff in the media right now about the ITU putting in controls of the internet. Is this a misconception or is there something in that? No, it uh, certainly is a misconception. I can understand why. Of course, it makes uh, the whole issue more, more interesting, I suppose, for readers. But in fact, uh, it's, it's not uh, the case. The internet, of course, is, is very complex and multifaceted, both technically and, and in terms of governance. Uh, there are many different stakeholders involved uh, with different uh, roles and responsibilities. So, so there's no question of any single entity exerting control over it. ITU standardization will work to ensure that our digital identities are as trusted as our identities in the real world. So does that mean we don't need to worry about the ideology leading the ITU? For the last eight years, the Secretary General has come from China, has that changed the direction of the organisation? Fiona Alexander is backing the American candidate for the next Secretary General, but she explains to suggest a UN body can seize control of the internet, even if it wanted to, is 
a little exaggerated. Look, I think, again, the, the agenda, a lot of it is developed by the member states and pushed forward. And we have seen in the last eight years proposals from China or Huawei or other other groups of, of actors trying to, to change the underlying uh, standards that develop the internet, this new IP proposal that's come in. Just tell us what the, the new IP proposal is. Sure. So there was a proposal a few years ago um, from a group of, of Chinese-based companies uh, suggesting, if I remember correctly, that today's internet wasn't sufficient to meet the challenges of tomorrow. And again, keep in mind, the internet is a network of networks. It's made up of a series of voluntary standards. Um, and they had proposed kind of a redesign of some of those standards. And in their redesign, which they thought would make it more robust for the future, the, the standards development and the implementation of those standards was very, very uh, heavily favored government intervention and government surveillance and government control versus today's networks and today's systems, which are very open and, um, you know, voluntary and based on best efforts of, of different companies. So some people might argue that, I mean, you talk about the best efforts of different companies, but that actually a lack of control has led to some fairly concerning developments, if we think about Facebook in relation to Myanmar, for example, or even Facebook in, in connection with recent American politics? I think that's that's a fair question. And I think you have to sort of consider whether these content moderation and content issues are within the remit of the I2 in general, which historically they haven't been. The I2 has focused very much on very much on the technical um, connection of networks, whether they be satellite networks or telecom networks. It hasn't actually done content issues. And a lot of reason I think that the UN Brit Large doesn't do well on content moderation or doesn't get into content moderation is that every member state has a different perspective on what's appropriate and what's not appropriate online. You know, from the U.S. perspective, uh, for the First Amendment is sacrosanct, and you wouldn't. And, and again, it's very difficult often for the U.S. government to join efforts and activities that are well intentioned to try to deal with things like this because it would violate the First Amendment. So, I, I don't think that the I two is a place necessarily where you're going to find answers uh, on content moderation issues. That's just not, it's just not what they do. And it's sort of not within the scope of the workflow. So some of the more sensational, perhaps, coverage I've seen in some, in some media about how if Russia gets control of the ITU, we can say goodbye to freedom of expression on the internet. That's, that's just not the case. I think it's. I think a lot of the stuff that's been written in the media is very um, black and white and, and stark, and I think the situation is quite not that stark. Um, first of all, the internet is a network of networks, and no country, no company, no one actor controls it. It's based on the system of voluntary standards that people deploy. Those standards usually are developed through the Internet Engineering Task Force and other sort of bottom-up multi-stakeholder processes. If you start developing standards for networks and Internet networks in the ITU that are government-based or government-led, you could start to see a slippery slope of standards and network deployments that are much more focused on you know, providing tools for government censorship or government control as opposed to today's. But the idea that the ITU is going to take over anything, I, I think 
think is not correct. Um, that being said, there are proposals that surface on a routine basis uh, from member states, including the Russian Federation, for the ITU to take over certain parts or to take over certain actors like the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers or ICANN that coordinates the domain name system and that the ITU should do it. Um, the ITU is not an enforcement authority. They don't have enforcement powers and they just can't take over something. It'd be like saying, oh, the ITU should just take over British Telecom or the ITU should take over AT&T. That that's not going to happen. The General Assembly is now voting on suspension of the rights of membership of the Russian Federation in the Human Rights Council. But there are other issues around this particular UN election. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, there has been a move to isolate Russia within the UN system. In favor, 93. Against, 24. Draft resolution is adopted. It's been suspended from the UN Human Rights Council it has been censured by the General Assembly. For Ambassador Simon Manley, and by the way, the UK is standing for election to the ITU's council, this is absolutely not the moment to put Russia at the top of a major UN agency. Oh, I mean, you know, with the thing being clear right across the UN system that we, you know, this is not the moment to see Russians elected to, to uh, top uh, positions when Putin's regime is flouting international law, flouting the charter. But actually, this election is not about the United States versus Russia. I think we are tremendously fortunate to have uh, Endorine, somebody who brings to the organisation decades of experience, real expertise, and an absolutely proven commitment to helping to bridge that digital uh, divide. So I think she's an excellent candidate. She will lead this organisation with great distinction. There's been some coverage in the US media, some in the Australian media as well, pitching this as a real ideological battle over freedom of expression. Should Russia gain control, we can forget about freedom of expression on the internet. And yet insiders at the ITU tell me that's a, a complete misconception. So I think there, there is a, there's a distinction, but it's more a distinction for me about how you develop these standards, how you run this organisation. Uh, and for us, look, we want to see uh, an internet that is open, that is peaceful, that is secure, uh, that enables the sharing of knowledge, the sharing of ideas, and enables that digitalization of the global economy. And fundamentally, that relies on what we kind of rather, rather sort of dully call the kind of multi-stakeholder kind of approach in which you're bringing people together, business, governments, experts, telecom regulators, rather than a kind of top-down restrictive approach to setting rules that kind of, basically it's all about trying to restrict access to the internet, not trying to enable the internet and uh, global comms to help spread knowledge, spread ideas, spread debate, spread wealth and prosperity. Another rocket climbs skyward to bolster a sector that Europe and the UK in particular has come to dominate, the business of telecommunications satellites. So at the end of the day, does it really matter to us who leads the ITU? Fiona Alexander believes it does, and she's got some examples that may not have occurred to us. If you're in a developing country, or if you're a young person or a woman, um, or if you've um, lived in an area that's suffered from a natural disaster, you might have been directly impacted by the ITU. Um, for example, in, in January of this year, there was the volcano that erupted in Tonga and cut connectivity in that country. So, you know, the ITU immediately got into action with its disaster recovery efforts, and it coordinated with other 
other satellite operators to provide bandwidth, and it also distributes satellite phones. So if you're a person in Tonga, you've been directly impacted by the I2's ability to provide you that basic connectivity back. If you are in a country um, where inclusivity and women's rights and things like that haven't been as big of a priority, the I2 definitely has a big emphasis on engaging the youth and women's uh, tech empowerment. They created a Women in Cyber Mentorship Program. So again, depending on where you are in the world, you you may have seen a direct impact um, in terms of what the I2 work has done to help you or not. The Secretary General decides how the money is allocated. The Secretary General decides um, where the priorities are going to be. And so if you have a Secretary General whose emphasis is on inclusion and connectivity and building the world connected and empowering them, you're going to have one set of priorities. If you have a Secretary General that doesn't have that as an agenda, you know, that could be more focused on, you know, implementing a system of government control or just, you know, basically doing the day-to-day to keep the place running but not focusing on these needs, then you're going to be impacted. And, and it, w- it could matter to you um, who the leadership is of the institution. By connecting the world to communications, ITU helps make our world safer more peaceful and progressive. And it's sure that whoever leads the ITU over the next four years, there are big challenges ahead. Malcolm Johnson argues the ITU's tradition of consensus will overcome any ideological differences. I believe that uh, we can overcome these these problems uh, because it's in the interest of all the membership. I think it's like... uh, mutually assured destruction when when you come to having to reach agreement on the use of the radio spectrum, for example, because if you don't come to an agreement and you harm another country's use of the radio spectrum, then you're going to get damaged as well. So that, that's uh, the fact that, you know, we have to reach agreement on the use of the radio spectrum is something I, I think is why we have this tradition in ITU of making every effort to reach um, consensus through uh, negotiation and and compromise. What would you put top of the to-do list? What are the priorities? What would you really like to see the ITU achieving in the next few years? The technology is now more vital for sustainable development than ever before. And so ITU's contribution is more important than ever. So it will be very important to keep ITU focused on its uh, core remit, so that uh, we do, the ITU does manage to bring everyone online in the near future and ensure that all the new emerging technologies, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, etc., 5G, 6G coming, these technologies have tremendous uh, promise for humanity. But we have to make sure, the organization has to make sure that they are distributed fairly and uh, are available equally throughout the world. So it's going to be a very challenging four years and I certainly wish uh, the new team every success. ITU steps up the global effort to bridge the digital divide, connecting people who still do not have access to modern communication tools. And- Simon Manley and Fiona Alexander agree the key challenge will be making the huge potential of digital technology, of modern information sharing, accessible to everyone on the planet. Absolutely the heart of that has to be this issue of the digital uh, divide. Um, you know, as I said, 60% of the world connected to the internet, 40% not, 96% living in developing countries. 
already some really good work going on uh, within the ITU on this. We'd like to see more of that, and we want to see it being done in a way that is both kind of competent, but also collaborative, working with other uh, organisations within the UN system and outside it, working with business, working with governments. Um, it's both an enormous challenge for us, and that's what the pandemic has caused real, but it is also revealed that it is an extraordinary opportunity, because if we can get this right, if we can connect our communities, both within our countries and among countries, we can ensure that the fruits of digitalization are available for everybody. I mean, I do think that, you know, the ITU's mission from its start has always been about connectivity at some level, right? You know, connectivity to make sure we understood the different telegraph signals. Um, But the idea of meaningful connectivity and getting everyone connected has taken on, you know, an an, an unusual importance or, I mean, for for people that have been working on a connectivity for years, they've been telling you this, right? But I think as we all witnessed during COVID, you know, if you weren't connected, maybe you couldn't do your job or maybe you couldn't go to school or maybe you couldn't live your life uh, both economically and socially. So the idea of getting everyone connected has just taken on a a renewed importance given our global experience with COVID. And I think from the ITU perspective, who's been working on these connectivity issues, you know, for decades, this is their time and this is their time to really make a difference and to make do the work to get the 2.9 billion people connected. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. We hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into that most important UN agency you had until now never heard of. Thank you for listening and do join us again. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.